So, you know, have you ever heard of Edward Bernays? Edward Bernays. Maybe. I don't think so. Okay. Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And there's several documentaries, whole documentaries. One of them, uh, the documentary is called um, The Century of the Self. And basically what this uh, whole series, it takes about four hours. And at the end of it, uh, there's an interview of him when he is 96 years old. And he never did get the point of what he had done. Basically being not just a, um, uh, uh, a nephew of Freud, but he was also a student of Freud. But what Edward Bernays did was he kind of invented what we will call industrial psychology for the moment. In the sense of uh, the original idea of psychology was Freud just trying to figure out what was going on in the human mind. Edward Bernays changed that not to what we would call psychotherapy is so that we can do that individual some good, but industrial psychology is let's figure out how the human mind works so that we can control it, so that we can manipulate it. And so the, the 20th century then is the growing up of industrial psychology, which turns us even more into stupid sheep. We even call them sheeple because we go along to get along. And that one of the interesting things that Bernays did that got him kind of famous was back around uh, World War One and before, women using tobacco was taboo. What happened now that women freely smoke? What was it that changed that? Because it used to be really taboo. Here's what happened. During the suffrage movement, where women were doing their uh, uh, walkabouts and parades, especially in New York City, Edward Bernays, uh, working with the tobacco companies, hired a lot of well-known women debutantes and paid them to walk in the front of these parades smoking cigarettes, which were just newly imported from France, not cigars. Okay, and so he introduced cigarettes to women and the suffrage movement. And even today, women's lib and tobacco is still connected. He made that connection. When he left doing that, he went to Germany and helped Hitler build what they call the propaganda machine. Interesting. After that, he worked with the, uh, um, the automobile industry and connected sex with selling automobiles. That's why you have the beautiful girl on the turntable around with a beautiful uh, convertible in her evening gown was to give the guys the idea you buy the car and you get the girl too. They even call them uh, chick magnets and things like this. Okay, this is what Edward Bernays has done to business. Some of the things that they were experimenting with in the really early days is painting the walls of the factory, you know, the dreaded factory where everybody hates it. 
what color is the best that we can get the most productivity out of the uh, out of the workers? Which color wall should be used? This is the kind of experimentation that they did. What they ran across was is that the people felt a little bit cared for when you painted their walls, the old dirty drudgery walls, giving the walls a fresh coat of paint. Didn't matter what color it was. So long as people were doing something to give the workers the delusion that they were being somehow cared for. So this is the whole world of industrial psychology and industrial psychology has also tapped into and somewhat polluted philosophy in the past hundred years in the sense of not only what can we do with uh, psychology to control these people, let's bring in philosophy to help us control them also. And so this is one of the problems with philosophy. I'm not against the love of wisdom. That in fact, in, in, in all regards, that's what the teaching of the Buddha is all about. Is both the love and the wisdom combined together. But what it has modern psychology and modern uh, philosophy has turned into is more or less an academic study with the idea of what can we do with this? What can we get out of it? Okay, so um, there's a lot of various psychological and uh, and philosophy phrases that have worked their ways into our culture, but many of them are not doing the, the job that you want them to do, especially since many of them conflict with each other. Uh, cliches are kind of like that, like uh, he who hesitates is lost. Look before you leap. Wait a minute. <laughs> or the one about the early bird gets the worm. Yeah, but who wants worms? <laughs> And so uh, that's a lot of what we see in, in these, these old teachings is things that have been boiled down to cliches. Many of them are quite wise, but altogether the whole bag is a mixed bag. And so really um, what we need to do is change the emphasis from the idea of long-term wisdom into short, precise, excellent wisdom. An example of that is a is a rail gun. Do you know what a rail gun is? Yeah, kind of, I mean. Okay, what they're doing now is they're working with ballistics, but instead of having an explosion that sends a projectile out the barrel, they're using electronic pulses to send to use electromagnetic fields to send that thing out. OK, now, basically what we're talking about then is, is that what is what is correct in the teachings of the Buddha is instantaneous wisdom in the sense of let's hit that thing, let's get it shot. But that really what our culture is, is much more of a steady state. Let's get it going slowly, slowly. Let's look for some progress. Things will work out eventually. 
just keep putting your in other words if at first you don't succeed try try again right a lot of that is built into our uh, uh, into our culture and that really what we need to do is to stop looking for long-term goals and start getting immediate results and working with that immediate results in the immediate presence um, and uh, so one of the ways of talking about it then is to talk about it from the perspective of that if you're going to develop a skill you've actually got to practice that skill to develop it not some other skill for instance the skills that one learns on a rifle range are not the skills as one playing the piano so if you're going to learn the skill of playing a piano you got to sit down at the piano and play the piano right this is an important point because many times people are sitting in what they're calling meditation and they're practicing things that either they're already good at and these are not skills so much as they are nuisances but they're very good at it because they practice it like a skill while at the same time they're not actually taking on the thing and working with that that actually needs to be developed as a skill okay so let's look at some of the skills that we're looking at for development uh, under the definition the classical lexicon definition in the poly dictionaries of the word sukha is safety security comfort and satisfaction and then we can add a fifth ingredient on that uh, at a later time uh, or let us say uh, as a building up to that would be then success if we become satisfied over and over again we feel success at being satisfied okay when we have so much success and so much satisfaction it just bubbles out and bubbles order we can consider that being wealthy so that would be the start of it from uh, from coming out of fear into feeling secure and safe comfortable satisfied successful and with that success wealthy so wealthy in fact that we just spread it out we're so wealthy we're so satisfied that we share that that wealth sharing then would be called the meta and most people try to practice meta when they don't have the skills for it you need to build that up where the skills are started. Basically, the number one skill that we're wanting to look at is the skill of feeling successful. Before that, we have to feel satisfied. So the root point to start with is satisfaction, because a lot of people say, yeah, I feel joy, but it's not enough. I want real joy. Well, yeah, they've got joy, they think, but actually if they're dissatisfied with it, then what's the point? No, we need to actually get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. In other words, this is good enough right now. This is okay. I can handle this. Okay. Third place is okay. Top 10. <laughs> it's all right. I don't have to be number one. Okay. But if we are very satisfied with where we are, then we can build that 
success so that the success then becomes extremely joyful because we know we've got a handle on it. We really are successful. That that success is built upon that state of satisfaction that we're satisfied over and over again. And that builds success. Okay. How do we start then? We start with the issue of safety and security and getting comfortable. All right, so we have to recognize for one thing that we're, we're in a room. There's no dangers there. Any dangers that more than likely will come into that room will not come through the door. They'll come through the mind. We'll start thinking of something dangerous and then the, we will feel danger when in fact there is in reality no danger. So we need to start practicing. The reality is, is that this is not dangerous. This moment is OK. That ghost that I see may be miles away. He may never get here. I may forget about that ghost before he arrives. OK, so why be afraid of ghosts? Most of the most of the ghosts are in the mind anyway. And that's where they do the damage. So if we just be in the here now and be in reality, we can actually then choose the kind of language that we're going to talk to ourselves about. So instead of talking to ourselves in fearful language that makes us feel fearful, we're going to talk to ourselves in uh, comfortable language that allows us to feel comfortable. An another way of talking about that is the distinction between critical thinking and nurturing thinking. Critical thinking is, in fact, going around making judgments. The original sin of Adam and Eve is eating of the tree of knowledge of this I like good and this I don't like evil. OK, that judgment or uh, whatnot can be seen as critical thinking and our entire society is built upon critical thinking and criticizing this house is not big enough. This house is old and they go build a new house and we keep having that thought as we keep building houses when that original house was fine. It was comfortable and safe if we would look at it that way. And so we want more and more and more and more because we're always feeling dissatisfied with what we have. But instead of getting more in order to be satisfied, why don't we develop the skill of being satisfied? That way we don't have to work so hard getting more. Amazing, isn't it? Turning the thing around, right? It's not that we have to fix the world in order for us to feel good. All we have to do is fix our own mind and we can feel good and the world can take care of itself. Now, that's come to hard to stick. In fact, what happened in Buddhism, it took about 500 years for the Mahayana to, to, uh, to really kick in and take effect. And one of the hallmarks of the Mahayana tradition is what is called the Bodhisattva ideal. You probably heard of it. And that has to do with uh, may all beings be happy. May all beings be enlightened. I'm going to stay unenlightened until all the others are enlightened and then I can become enlightened too. That's basically the way that Westerners think about that. Well, that's got flaws in it. 
one of the flaws is, is that you don't know everybody. So how can you wait for everybody to become enlightened? Another one is, is that what happens when all the people are enlightened, except for, let us say, 10 or 20 or maybe 10,000 bodhisattvas, all trying to push each other through the gate so that I could be last. You go first. No, you go. No, you go. But basically, what we're really looking at is a restatement of that whole thing is I want everybody, everybody to shut up so I can get some peace and quiet. And when we hear it that way, go ahead. Could I offer a thought about that, though? Because I feel like, I mean, I get what you're saying 100%, but I feel like it's, Kent, what about thinking about it in the way that thinking um may all beings be enlightened is a more generous way of and so instead of saying like may i be enlightened you say may all beings be enlightened and you're including yourself in that so that okay all beings as well as myself be enlightened uh-huh. so that you're not just thinking may i be enlightened i don't care about all right it. never mind the direction or the audience or the intended results or anything look at it in fact that what this really is is wishful thinking mm-hmm. it's just wishful thinking yeah wanting something that you can't have and wanting something that you don't have and can't have is a form of suffering right. well wishing is a form of suffering like hope right hope for things to get better things are not going to get better things are as they are and we'll judge them when we see them in the future and we will judge them just like we judge them now because we're in the habit of things so that even though something may materially improve it's still not good enough okay so this is all may all beings be happy is wishful thinking also, there's another point or way of looking at it is, is that it is delusional in the sense that we've got the cause and effect backwards. It's like standing beside a wet, soppy log, completely saturated with water. It's been in the bog for years and making the prayer oh mr log please set yourself on fire we need you to be on fire we have to have some fire the fire the log's not going to set itself on fire any more than uh the population of the humanity is going to become enlightened just because you're wishing for it to be so okay but a log can be dried out so that it can be set on fire and then that log set it on fire and in proper usage it can burn down a forest okay so now we're looking at real cause and effect wishful thinking and wanting that log to set itself on fire not going to happen but we can take uh absolute procedures to get that log dried out so that it will burn all right so now we're looking at then the distinction between metta meditation and anapanasati. Anapanasati is sitting there striking that fire. 
is this thing on yet? Is this on yet? Yeah, there it goes. I can see it now. All right. So that's the way that we do it is, is that we get things on fire first. After we have some fire going, now we have options of what we're doing, going to do with it. But when everybody is unhappy, when everybody is unenlightened, wishing for it to be so, ain't going to work. It's just wishful thinking that it doesn't be any happier. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, the better way of looking at it is from the sense of the cause and effect. Let's do the things that actually will remove suffering by removing the causes of suffering right here, right now, in this present moment. Let's come out of critical thinking which is warning this and not warning that, wanting all beings to be happy, that's critical thinking. The fact is, is that the world is okay. Everybody's already enlightened enough. Why don't you sit down and relax and enjoy the fact that everybody's enlightened enough? We've got a nice, marvelous society. So, this is actually the real teachings of the Buddha, is the issue of the arahat, or the small boat, the hinayana, the individual, only the individual can straighten his own mind out. He cannot straighten out the minds of others if he can't straighten out his own mind. But by being able to straighten out his own mind, he begins to see the minds of others much clearer so that he can point them in the direction for them also, each one individually to clean his own mind. But no one can clean another person's mind. Can't be done. But a lot of money can be made lying about it. And that's part of what our society is built upon is that industrial psychology is in service trying to make everybody pay by the promise of giving them what they want. Okay, so instead of a chick magnet from business, psychology has wellness to sell. They're actually in competition with the priest. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I saw in something else that you recorded, like you were talking about the monkeys being conditioned to push the button and getting the treats, and then they're just pushing the button and nothing's coming, and like that's, you know, the U.S. society or whatever. And it, it really is so damn true. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're damn pushing buttons. Like, and just thinking that, like, most of, I feel like it's, like, not even that, though. Most people are, like, just hoping to get a chance to push the button, you know? They don't even see that when even when you do push the button. <laughs> you're not getting anything. Well, there's many different ways to push the button. And hoping to get to push the button is a kind of button pushing. Mm. Um, and what what this really means is is that with Edward Bernays as the instigator of all of this that basically what we want is we want the monkey to want something so we train the monkey to want and so there he is pushing that button because he wants something out of it, right? That's the way that we're trained, and this that's the whole society right there. That's it. 
and I use um, the word grab as uh, a way of kind of classifying or beginning to understand it. And that grab means government, religion, education, and big business. G-R-E-B. Okay. And each one of them is lying to you in order to take advantage of you, mostly using fear. Okay. Fear of immigrants or fear of right-wingers at one level. Fear of hell on another level. Uh, uh, fear of being stupid and not up to scratch. And also fear of loss or fear of not getting what we want. And that's where big business comes in. And mostly all of the various products of manufacturing is generally goes to waste because it was frivolous in the first place. It was generally sold frivolously. We really didn't need it. I really don't need this hard, these, the, this computer hardware. I just play with it because I enjoy playing with it. But many people buy a bunch of stuff because they think they need it. They've been lied to. Uh, and so we buy stuff because we need it. We get educated because we need it. We get religion because we need it. And we've got big government because we need it, we think. In fact, we don't need any of that stuff to take the next breath and just be happy for a while. This whole quality is uh, in the Pali. There's a word for it, and the word is sila bata paramasa. And what that word sila bata paramasa means to being attached to the way things ought to be. And we could go so far as to define morality. Morality is how things ought to be. If people are high upstanding and moral, then they'll behave like they ought to behave, right? But almost all morality is lodged in the brain along with all of the other rules. So when rules are a, uh, let us say, when morality becomes a set of rules, now the society owns it. Society owns morality because it's just a more of their rule system. But there's another way to have morality, and that is, is that if your mind is noble and you don't want anything, then you're probably not going to kill anybody to get it or steal it or molest somebody. You're unlikely to lie for it. If you don't want anything, your morality, in fact, is very high quality. So here you, you have this system of human uh, culture that on one hand is propagating the best they can to keep you greedy and in want. And then they have all of these rules to tell you exactly how you're supposed to go about doing it. With all the laws and all the you should do it this way and you shouldn't do it that way and everything like that. But if you don't want anything, you don't need any rules. And so actually, that's part of the, the spiritual journey is to throw out all of the rules. But we have to do that wisely in the sense that we have to already have the mind free. And so uh, part of becoming free, though, is throwing the rules out. It's not a catch-22. It's more that these things are done together. 
And we do that at that point in time, going back to the Eightfold Noble Path, is, is that we can see then that all of that stuff is painful. That's why we're wanting to practice Anapanasati is because we can see enough in general so that now we wake up at that point in time of Sati, to wake up, which basically an easy way for Westerners to understand is, is to stop with the automatic pilot, stop acting um, instinctually, and start acting with the best part of the human brain to actually look at what we're doing, to investigate, and to investigate with discrimination. And that discrimination is, is this thought wholesome or is this not, is this thought not wholesome? Or another way of saying it, is this thought a critical thought that leads me into the second noble truth of, of discrimination that way of I like this and I don't like this, but whether we're discriminating that that kind of thinking is painful and that we can change that into nurturing very much like a, a very tender infant, a newborn baby, is nurtured. If that tender infant is not nurtured, it's going to die from lack of nourishment, lack of nurturing. And that when the child gets about three or four years old, as it gets older, it's put to work. That's when critical thinking comes in. Learn your ABCs, do your one, two, threes, pick up your clothes, clean your room, put down your cell phone and do your homework. All of that kind of critical thinking then comes in and layers over the original nurturing that we young children were getting. And so now that's how we treat ourselves. We're using all of this programming that was, pro we let this programming in because of our instinct. That is the herding instinct to go along to get along. Mommy says, if you don't pick up your toys, you're going to get a spanking. Therefore, out of fear, I go along to get along, and I don't want to pick up my toys. I don't want to pick up the yard. I don't want to do any of that stuff, but I do it because I was told to do it. And now we get in the habit of doing things that we're told to do. Often, it's our own thoughts that we learned as children, all of the rules that we're now supposed to follow. So we've got kind of a parent ego state or a parent in our head going around saying, do this, do that. And then the child inside is rebelling. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do this. Which leaves us with either rebellion and guilt for rebellion, or it leaves us in the dumb animal state of going along and doing what we're told to do, but we resent it. So rebellion and guilt and resentment is normally what we build up with this rather than using it wisely. But we did that when we were kids. We did it ignorantly. But now, adult, you can use the, the adult part of the brain to catch yourself doing that kind of stuff and to stop it right then and to put yourself into nurturing gear and immediately become satisfied. Now we've got something to work with, satisfaction. That's a skill to be developed is to learn to be satisfied. We can nurture ourselves into saying no bears, no IRS agents, no snakes, no alligators. This Everything is, is okay right now. Everything is fine. No problems, no worries. Just relax and be comfortable. 
And with that comfort, now we can become satisfied. Okay, this is all right. This is good enough. And so we need to develop that as a skill, to develop that sukha as a skill. Safety, security, comfortable, and satisfaction. Over and over and over again. Why? Because you've been dissatisfied over and over and over again, building up quite a habit. And so now it's time to practice being satisfied until you make that a habit. Because there's sometimes that we need a whole lot of satisfaction to go along with all the crap that just happened. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> and when we become satisfied and handle some tough situations, we begin to get the attitude, I can handle anything. If I can handle that, I can handle anything. And now that's what we mean by the right attitude. The right attitude is, is that I can handle anything. I am satisfied enough with the way that I deal with things that I can handle this. I'm a winner here. So an example is, is that someone hurts me. If I allow him to be uh, hurt me, then I want to get even. I want to take revenge. I want to teach him a lesson. I want justice here. That kind of thing. All right. But if I've got a winner's attitude, because that's the victim. Wanting revenge, wanting to get even is because he's been on top and he's hurt me and I'm down. But if I have the attitude, ha, he didn't touch me, not a scratch. He can't get to me. In other words, the best revenge is living well. He can't touch me. I'm just fine without it. I don't care if he did steal my watch. I can tell time. I mean, <laughs> he's got the clock, but I've got the time. <laughs> so this is the attitude that we're talking about, that they can't hurt you because your mind is strong enough to resist any uh, of that kind of influence. But they can't hurt you. Only you can hurt you. But in fact, that's the realization that whatever he did, stealing your watch didn't hurt you. So why should you feel bad? It's up to the watch. If he doesn't like his new owner, then it's up to the watch to feel bad. But we have the idea, oh, it's my watch that was stolen. No, it was just a watch. The my part was my delusion. And I just proved to myself that it's not my watch at all because look, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is all along, it was not my watch. But we can see that now and we see that we can just let go. Okay, it's gone. But I'm still okay. Can't touch me. Winner here. The Buddha referred to himself as a lion. This is what we're talking about, being the bull, being the big dude, the one who uh, the calves can't touch us, can't bother us, because we've got our mind together. We've got a fortress here. Okay, so this is what is Sama Sankapa. The Pali word for that is Sama Sankapa, and all of this is part of the Eightfold Noble Path. Samaditi, right view. Samasati right effort, right attitude. That's the Samasankapa. And so 
right view, right effort, and right sati run and circle around each other until we get some success. Okay, or actually satisfaction. Getting that satisfaction adds that fourth ingredient of feeling successful. That's the right, the right, uh, it's translated sometimes as right intention or right thought. But we're looking at something a little deeper than that in the sense that your attitude determines the actual moment by moment thoughts that you have. So developing a good attitude is going to actually change the way you think. Easy example is there's just been some sort of competition, a tug of war, a fist fight, a 15 round boxing ring, whatever like that after the game is over. Everybody feels relieved, or at least the two contestants. Well, I'm glad it's over. But the winner will have different thoughts about the game over than the loser does. That winning, that attitude of the winner determines how we think. And so developing the attitude of a winner will then begin to determine and make your thoughts more wholesome more easily. Which means now that the effort is not so strong. In the beginning, it takes effort to gain some satisfaction. Like, never mind, I'll handle this. I can take care of it. I'll be OK has to turn into. Yeah, I can. I can really I can take care of that. <laughs> One's got effort built into it. The other one is easy peasy. And and that transition from effort into energy is actually this change of attitude. And that change of attitude is a major part of the, the path that the Buddha has. And in fact, getting that attitude to the point where you're absolutely eager for the Dhamma, you're eager for getting your mind going, you're eager for listening to the Dhamma. That's a, an important uh, point to come to so that we only really care about the Dhamma. That's the only thing. I mean, that, why should I care about a Mercedes when I can just sit here and be happy instead? If I start thinking about a Mercedes, I'll start wanting one, you know. <laughs> so why don't I just sit here and think about not wanting a Mercedes and now I'm really satisfied. So if we start thinking this way, then that brings on that attitude of I don't need a Mercedes. I'm OK without one. I'm fine. Everything's already OK. And by by doing that on a regular basis, we really change our whole lifestyle. This is, in fact, the result of um, right, noble uh, attitude, along with sati and the effort and the view, is what generates and brings about this thing called right organization of mind or right unification of mind that in the Pali is so misunderstood as sama area samati they think that it's a concentrated mind. Mm. No, it's non-concentrated. It's, you know, because you think of concentration as, you know, with a microscope. But really, samati is much more like a telescope of opening it up, of seeing things like that. So this is a way that we begin to practice. This is what Anapanasati is. And the 16 stages of Anapanasati have various things that I have been mentioning, but haven't been labeling them as, oh, this is number four, this is number five, this is number seven. There are 16 of these things, you know. 
but I have been. And in fact, the doing the investigation of the mind, the uh, that investigation or the right view is actually step nine of Anapanasati, is to look at what the mind's doing. And then the next step, step 10, is the gladdening the mind, which is taking the right effort to put right thoughts. Number one is, is to intentionally to take long, deep, easy breaths, to make, make the breathing easy and long so that we've got enough oxygen in the blood so that we can put this frontal cortex into gear rather than operating by automatic pilot. In fact, when people are, th- are saying that they're going deep into meditation, normally what that means is deep into the reptilian brain rather than up top into the higher part of the mind, the, uh, uh, the human, the frontal cortex. And that's what we want to put in gear, which is the observation, the one who can connect the dots, the ones who actually sees what's going on. An example of that is in the military on rifle ranges and hunters. One of the things that everybody is interested in is which direction is the guns pointed? Especially if somebody's got a shotgun over his uh, uh, arm, slinging it around while he's talking. And three or four people are from moment by moment in the range of that shotgun at their level of their knees. Right around you, you can see all these kneecaps beginning to dance because they don't want that shotgun pointed at them. All right? This is wisdom in a way. Because we know that the direction that that gun is pointed means that's where the trajectory is going to go if it goes off. And now we can recognize that almost everything in society is just a pointed gun. Which direction is this thing pointed? And if it's pointed at me, that's dangerous. So that's kind of a way of looking at what is wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to see how things are headed, seeing the direction that things are going in. And so that means that we have the wisdom to know that unwholesome thoughts lead to unwholesome feelings and that wholesome thoughts lead to wholesome feelings. And so right view then or wisdom is to look at what's going on, look at what's happening. So that that phrase then of if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. I use that actually with Bhikkhu Buddhadasu when I first met him and he chuckled and he says, no, if at first you don't succeed, look at what you're doing. That's what Anapanasati is all about, is look at what the mind is doing, because when we see what it's doing, we have a choice about it. If we're not paying much attention to what the mind is doing, we don't have any choice. And so Anapanasati is all about the choice of taking it out of unwholesome and put it into wholesome, putting ourselves into a state of satisfaction, putting ourselves into a state of success, putting ourselves into a state of safety and comfort. This, by the way, is uh, step seven and six. No, seven. Yes, six and five of on Anapanasati. And relaxation is step four just to relax, become comfortable. So these are all the steps uh, that are that are there in Anapanasati, but when we read it in that organized way, it's actually quite confusing. Yeah. Because things don't happen chronological like that. 
that everything kind of happens within a mind moment or a second or two. Okay, so the wake up the sati, take a look, throw that thought out, put a new thought in, gladden the mind, take a deep breath, enjoy the moment, and feel good, feel comfortable. That's kind of the process. Is there a sutta specifically that has the uh, these 16 steps? Yes, it's called Ayanapanasati Sutta. Okay. And it's under 118 in the Majjhima Nikaya. You can actually just Google MN118 and it'll find it for you. Okay, very cool. Um, I think one thing that's just uh, interesting to me is that because you have to use effort, right? That's what I'm definitely getting from this. You have to use effort and a lot of effort, really. No, no, not a lot of effort, just enough to actually get the job done. And in fact, that's one of the major mistakes that meditators put in. They're either putting in no effort at all or way too much. Generally in the noting method, they put in too much effort. And in a system in Vajrayana they call choiceless awareness, there the people are not putting up enough effort. No, it's got to be the right effort, and the right effort has results to it. Okay. Right. But we have to do it just a little bit of effort over and over and over and over again. It's almost like pushing your car to town. You don't keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You just push it and get it going a little bit and let it roll. And when it comes to a stop, you push it again. Let it roll. And when it stops, you push it again. Not so much effort. Easy. Doesn't matter how push, how hard you push it. All you're doing is doing extra work because the, the real job is just to get the car to town so you get some gas in it. But people get into a hurry and they start running and they want to push hard, 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 all of that. Instead of just, no, just get it going. That's all we're doing right now is just get the car going. And when it rolls to a stop, it's going to give it a nudge again. And so we want to do that with the mind. Yeah. It's just interesting because it's so easy to, I think, fall into future thinking with Buddhism because it's like, you know, we're given this ideal of, hey, this person reached nirvana, you can do it too, end of suffering. So it's like, oh my God, I want that, you know, but so it's... Except for one thing they're missing, the point is is that when he did that, he just did it right now. Yeah. And you can too, right now. Just do it. That's all, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) just do it. (laughs) And if you stop doing it, recognize that you've stopped doing it and do it again. But generally what happens is people will stop doing it and then they recognize that they've stopped doing it and then they'll say, oh me, I was doing it. Now I'm not doing it. Oh, pity party. Instead of just saying, right, there you go. Just do it again. <laughs> oh, it's easy, but you have to keep doing it over and over again. But what you have to do is easy enough if you think of it. So the real skill then is sati. A way of thinking of it then is is that sati is like uh, for any skill. Any skill that you have is useless if you forget to use it when you need it most. Just when you need it most, you forget to use it. That in fact, that happens in in martial art uh, uh, where the guys are 
uh, they're going through a kata, and then things get tense, and then the student forgets what the next move is. Okay, so we forget our skills just when we need them the most. So sati are to remember, to remember to wake up and take a look and clean the mind out. That's the number one skill. This is why we actually want to practice it so often. Like, for instance, in the in-breath, we use sati to make sure it's a long breath. We're waking up and we understand that this is a long breath. That's sati. Then we make it a, a short or, or an out, a long out breath. That making sure that it's an out breath, which is an easy thing to do, but we needed to remember to do it. And so in we do sati, out we do sati, in and out and in and out, and pretty soon we're developing sati as a skill to remember to be here now. That's the show, is to remember to come back and do the skills. So sati comes first, investigation, right view comes second. The third thing that happens is the right effort to change the mind from unwholesome to wholesome. The next thing then would be taking a long, deep, easy breath and then a sigh of relief. Wow, what a relief it is to not have to think about my argument with Aunt Susie. I don't have to think about that right now. I do not have to think about that philosophy paper that's due next week. I don't have to think about it right now. I can just sit here and enjoy myself. Maybe that philosophy paper should have the title of I'm not enjoying philosophy right now. I'm having too much fun to write this paper and hand that in. <laughs> not sure how some professors would hand it. I know a few professors give you an A plus on that one. <laughs> Well, he finally figured out what philosophy is all about. It's love and wisdom, and you just demonstrated both of those things. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're right in that a lot of philosophy, especially the brand that uh, I practice here, uh, is, again, super connected to industrial psychology, and, you know, everyone knows it. I mean, everyone knows that, like, we're not being taught how to be happy people. We're being taught how to perpetuate the system that we're a part of, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's just like, you know, it's the, yeah, it is what it is. And, and the trick or the hook is, is that, yeah, but you're studying philosophy to help make the system better. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The real philosophy is reckoning that, hey, man, the system's good enough. Enjoy it. <laughs> what needs to be improved is not the system. It's our attitude towards the system. But sometimes attitude is more difficult to change than the system. At least that's how that's the general idea, because look how many people are involved with politics, all of them trying to change the system. And very few of them are actually trying to change their own mind. And if they did, they'd leave politics.
And so yeah. we need to practice this. It's not that we're not going to um, ever do anything again. But rather, whatever our hands find to do, we're going to do it now with clarity and joy so that the whole world becomes your toy rather than your work. But also, maybe I'm overthinking the idea of using things as a toy, but like, um, you know, it can be definitely odd to be thinking about, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, say you're trying to take um, a paper about something very serious and, you know, arguably horrible, you know, it's hard to see like an issue like, you know, starvation or something as being a like seeing that as a toy seems like a maybe not the best way of thinking. I do agree <laughs> that you may not be able to convince someone who is miserable <laughs> over world hunger that she can in fact sit down and relax without solving world hunger because she's not solving world hunger right now anyway. She's just complaining that you're not. And both of you could sit down and just relax even when there is world hunger because your uptightness is not going to solve world hunger. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I know, it is so simple, isn't it? <laughs> and in fact, if you're just sitting there and relaxed and mused, you may come up with an idea of some farm implement or something to solve world hunger. But if you're worried about feeding the hungry, uh, you're all uptight and worried and unproductive. But boy, that's a really good argument to use to counter someone who's on YouTube saying, don't worry, be happy. They'll tell you all the things that they've got to worry about before they could be happy. I have heard of children in Yemen, world hunger. How can you possibly be happy when chauvinism is so deep that even some monks are chauvinistic? How could you be happy when preachers won't let women be preachers. The answer to that is I can't stop preachers from being chauvinistic. I don't even want to try. But if I could be an example to a few people of one who is happy enough to not be chauvinistic, then maybe they can see it as an example. That's the problem with all the world becoming enlightened before I become enlightened is, is that now I am robbing the world of an example of what they actually are looking for. And in fact, the average Bodhisattva is just out there in the crowd wondering who is going to be their example. Well, we got to be our own example. That's it. <laughs> We have to clean out our own mind. We can't do it for somebody else, nor can we expect anybody else to do it for us.
Buddha was quite clear about that, that you cannot read the mind of another. All we can read is behavior. Which is quite telling when people are um, uh, operating solely out of instinct. Because some liars are really sophisticated. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're very good at it. They've been doing it a long time. And so sometimes we don't know what other people have on their mind. We don't know. And that's a blessing. Because now that means that I really don't have to solve anybody else's problem. I can actually fight, start to concentrate, if it were that word, on what needs to be done right here, right now. That's all there is to it. Just sit and relax. Not a care in the world because we threw all the caring out. But now, when we are in a really marvelous state, lots of joy, then we meet the world with joy, which is what the world needs. That's what Metta and Karuna and Mudita, especially Mudita, are all about. Is if you've got some joy, go spread that joy. And if you don't have any, go get some before you try to spread it around. Everybody out there trying to make everybody else happy and nobody's got any of it. But if you can go and work on getting your real happiness going, you become really satisfied and content and successful and satisfied, then you can deal with the world that way. So in that regard, we have two jobs to do or two toys to play with. One is the inside world and the other is the outside world. And we and part of the um, uh, outcome is friendliness. We become friendly on the inside, unified. And then we start working on being friendly on the outside, which means we stop criticizing other people. And just let them be as they are and invite them to be happy. But it's really hard to teach people to be happy when you're not happy yourself. Yeah. So this is the practice then, is don't worry about the rest of the world. You'll deal with them successfully when you can deal with your own mind successfully. So let's go do that first. And how do we do that? Right here, right now, throw that unsuccessful thought out Put a successful thought in, you're good to go. That's simple. Over and over and over and over and over again until we get it ducks lined up. One wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. So go practice that. <laughs> I will, and I will enjoy it very much. <laughs> I, I would recommend rather than doing it once or twice for long sessions is to start planning on doing it throughout the day, like for 10 or 15 minutes. Pretty soon you'll get it down to like three or four minutes because that's all you need. Mm. 
A good time to do it is when you first wake up in the morning, and another time to do it is after you're, you've gone to bed at night before you're asleep. Because the only other option is to worry about what you're going to do today or worry about what you're going to do tomorrow. And instead, you can just lay there in bed and enjoy yourself. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I don't know. You're, you're absolutely right. I have been doing that. Um, I, I, I haven't <laughs> given up my attachment to doing one long meditation. I still am doing an hour meditation in the morning because, I don't know, I enjoy it. It's just what I'm doing at this moment in time. Um, but then also doing two 15-minute meditations throughout the day, as well as trying to keep myself as well as I can um, continuing with wholesome thoughts throughout everything. Because this, mm -hmm. you know, like you said, there's no need to stop. I mean, it's if you as soon as you stop, it's like immediately back in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you see that that's uncomfortable, you can say, "Wait a minute, I don't have to do that." Sati, wake up. Never mind. Start again. <sighs> I think a, uh, a challenge that arises is that it's easy to start seeing this practice through the lens of the external world and through the lens of everything else that we get everything else through. Mm -hmm. Well, now I invite you to look through the lens of, wow, this is really nice. <laughs> yeah. That's the lens to look in. This moment is nice. This moment is just fine. I approve this moment stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the way to look is everything right now is just OK. You know, this has been a great call. I've really enjoyed this. Like the last one I had this morning, this hour has just gone right by. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm excited to keep keep pushing because I feel like, like I said, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not trying to put myself as, as a big victim or whatever. Like I have a very privileged life, I have a good life, but I am, you know, again, you know, there's a lot of damn philosophy coming that way, you know. So it's like I'm I'm eager and having a good time meeting all of the critical thoughts and all the challenges that come with that with just replacing it you know and just being like this is damn good i'm damn good where i'm at right now you know? <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> you're you know? on top of the world recognize it and appreciate it mm -hmm. exactly. you might have heard me say sometimes that every person everyone is an emperor of their own pile of dirt the question is, are you going to be buried under your pile of dirt? Are you going to be clawing your way out of it? Or are you going to sit on top of your pile of dirt? That's great. That's really great. Right. I, I prefer to be on top of the world. Thank you. <laughs> Sitting on top of the world, which is nothing but my own mess. My <laughs> own dirt. Okay, cool. My past. <laughs> you know this has been a delightful conversation thank you so much delightful. thank you thank you i'll see you later okay. one last point and that is is that uh your um 
welcome to join the, the Sangha. Um, tomorrow, uh, let us, I think today is Friday, my time, but it's still Thursday, your time. So tomorrow in the evening time in the U.S., 7 Pacific and 10 uh, Eastern, we'll have a, uh, a Zoom call. And also tomorrow, I've got another interview with um, that's been ranged for a long time. So um, Keyshawn will be managing that that call. I would, would really like it if you join and, and meet everybody there. Yeah, for sure. I really should. You know, I won't, you know, no future thinking. I'm not going to put myself to anything, but I would I would like to, too. And I definitely plan on it. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Do you have the link? I do. I do. You're great. Excellent. Yeah. All right. You know, we'll see you soon. Okay. I'll see you. Thank you. Enjoy the moment. <laughs> I will.